Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. Today's episode of Autism Stories makes me think of the rap group Salt and Pepper. You may ask, why the heck does Salt and Pepper have to do with this episode of Autism Stories? Well, in, in 1991, they had a hit single, Let's Talk About Sex. And in the 31 years since this single was released, it doesn't seem like we've made much progress or at least as much as I would certainly like, in regards to educating and talking about sex with so many autistic people and all the good things and the bad things that can come from sex. That's why I'm thrilled to have Angela Lacascio join this episode to discuss being a clinical sexologist, the impact of sex on the lives of autistics, and what it means to be an intersectional octopus. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Well, Angela, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really excited about being here with you. Yeah, I've really been looking forward to this conversation, and we'll get into that in, in a minute or two. But wanted to kind of start out and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? Well, I have only recently been diagnosed autistic, but perhaps I should have seen it a long time ago. I was diagnosed with ADHD 23 years ago when I was 22 years old, but autism was not part of that conversation at all. I didn't fit the criteria, and I'm using air quotes here with that because (laughs) it didn't fit the criteria, you know, as we are taught, what does autism look like, quote unquote, look like? Well, it looks like me. But that's not the picture that was out there for everybody. Even as a teacher, I'm a professionally licensed teacher. I, you know, autism diagnosis was gendered and biased towards white males. I would even go as far to say biased towards white males in higher economic situations. So I didn't realize that my interactions with others, the way I created my physical space, were all part of my autistic self and making sure that my needs were met. So I never used overhead lights in my own classroom. I preferred natural lighting. I had little rugged areas where students could sit. I had a trampoline that we used, textured objects to play with, headphones, all of those things. And even the reasoning behind my teaching field that I went into was influenced by my own experience and understanding of language and communication. So only now, with the new research that's been happening in the last five to ten years or so, even the last couple of years, um, has it become clear that I'm autistic. I still needed some help to get there, though. (laughs) I'm a military wife, and that means that we've moved several times in the last couple of years. So our most recent one brought me to a place that's really noisy, has lots of smells, a lot of dogs around. I can't create the personal space 
that really works for me because I live in military housing, along with perimenopause, menopause, COVID, all of those things happening at the same time, I needed to go back and see a mental health professional. Of course, I went and said, I need help with my ADHD. I'm going to need meds. And she said, um, let's look at these sensory sensitivities you're having. Let's reevaluate this diagnosis a little bit. And, you know, it was painful. Actually, the process, the diagnostic process for me was really painful because, again, there are plenty of professionals who don't have the latest research. They're not up to date on it. So I saw several professionals and some said, you can't be autistic because you are too good at communication. You wouldn't have been able to be a teacher. You wouldn't be able to be a sexologist. You wouldn't be successful in having a career if you were autistic. They also said, because you have past sexual trauma, it must be PTSD and it can't be autism. The symptoms that you're having cannot be autism. It has to be related to sexual trauma, which I'm not denying <laughs> um, anything there, but that, you know, years of therapy and working through that and even the way that I dealt with that, it does not match with PTSD, although there's definitely CPTSD um, in there. <laughs> so when you have, like, I'm getting all worked up here, like I'm feeling my, yeah, breathe. When you have a professional who you respect or you want to respect and they are dismissive of you. They look at you again with all of these other disorders that you've been diagnosed and then told, actually, no, that that doesn't work. That medication doesn't work for you because you don't have this and that doesn't work for you because you don't have this. And you've been searching all of these years and then you kind of get back in that same loop where you're being told, no, this is a mood disorder. No, it's your hormones and all of the reasons why you can't be autistic from this group of people over here who are using diagnostic tools that were made for little white boys instead of using the most up-to-date research. It was definitely nice to have another doctor who came in and said, for fork's sake, <laughs> have you read the new research? Are you aware of female presentation? What about adult late, di late diagnosed females? She checks all the boxes. She's autistic. So, yeah, that's that's it. Like, the last year has been a whirlwind for me. Now, one of the first things people see when they go to your uh, social media profiles is that you mention a phrase that I haven't necessarily seen before, but I think is really important, and that you talk about being an intersectional octopus. Can you talk about what that phrase means to you? Yeah, with pleasure. I will happily talk about that. <laughs> so my whole life, people have just spilled their guts to me. They've just told me so much about themselves. They've really opened up to me. So many people have said, I don't know why I'm telling you this. I just feel comfortable with you. Now, of course, on the other hand, <laughs> there are there's the opposite of that, where people are saying, you're intimidating, you're standoffish, and I don't want to have anything to do with you. <laughs> but I look at that, the piece where people felt comfortable with me. It was usually social outliers, people who weren't always the most confident and comfortable in other situations who felt comfortable with me, and it, that all makes sense now, right? But it's that, that internal sense 
that I have that people are made up of so many different experiences and they should be seen as beautiful, unique kaleidoscopes of those experiences. A couple years ago, there was an article in Scientific American and they said, I'm going to just, I'm going to give it to you exactly what they said because it was perfect. In an octopus, it is not clear where the brain begins and ends. The octopus is suffused with nervousness. The body is not a separate thing that is controlled by the brain or nervous system. The usual debate is between those who see the brain as an all-powerful CEO and those who emphasize the intelligence stored in the body itself. But the octopus lives outside both the usual pictures. So, like an octopus has many tentacles, brains, hearts, humans have many experiences. And all of those experiences influence how we think about, feel about, and participate in the world around us. And for me, in the work that I do, and the way that I can best communicate with others and understand them is to take all of that into consideration. We consider experiences we've had culturally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, sexually, and take all of that into account, our experiences regarding our outwardly perceived gender, as well as our own gender expression, ethnicity, sexual orientation, sexuality in general, socioeconomic status, all of this matters. All of it influences our perception and our response to the environment around us. And our nervous system, like the octopus, it's at the center of it all. So like the octopus, we must live outside of the usual pictures and understand that intelligence lives within the body. And as a person and professional, that's how I live and how I approach the world. I like how you use the word experiences because I think in te you know I think experience is such a great teacher, probably the greatest teacher. And I think it's so important to consider those experiences when interacting with another human. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? And coming at it from a place of non-judgment, because it's the judgment that puts distance between us. And I just like to... I like to look at those experiences without judgment and understand that the one thing that we all have in common is that we all have unique experiences. Now, when I first learned about you, um, I think it was through LinkedIn, and I saw that you were a certified clinical sexologist and immediately wanted to talk to you because there's not nearly enough attention and support for us as autistics in the area of uh, our sexuality. So starting off with just the basics, what the heck does a certified clinical sexologist do? Excellent question. I help people understand how they think about, feel about, and do sex and sexuality has a big impact on how they think about, feel about, and do life in general. Their experiences as sexual beings, which mammals are, even if we don't engage in intercourse, sexuality is inherently part of who we are 
as mammals. But all of those experiences matter. They are nothing to be ashamed of, and they are normal, regardless of what our heteronormative society projects. People think that because I'm a clinical sexologist, I talk about sex all day long. Actually, maybe 5% of conversations that I have talk about sex, sex itself, right? The other 95% of those conversations are really about how we can be authentic and accepted so that we can enjoy and participate in all aspects of our lives because they intersect. So when the topic of sex is brought up, at least here in the United States, such a common response seems to be one of discomfort. People tend to be quiet. They don't say much. They shut down. So I'm just wondering from the, pers the perspective that so many people mask their true identities. You were just talking about authenticity. You know, they aren't their authentic selves through, through their life. So how much of an impact do you see not talking about sex or so often not being educated on this topic being harmful to, to folks, um, maybe especially those with neurodivergent identities? Well, for me personally, <laughs> I truly, truly, truly believe that the masking and the angst, the agitation, the anger, the frustration that I held in not being able to be my authentic, autistic, queer, gender queer self, you know, I had cancer. I had gynecological cancer. And I fully believe that there, you know, like intelligence rests in the body, right? There was a lot of energy that was being expended in not having self-compassion for who I am and others not having compassion for me. And therefore, my body started breaking down. And I got cancer. And it's funny, it's not funny, but it's funny how that cancer seemed to be centered around the sexual self in such a, you know, an intimate, you know, gynecological cancer. It's such an intimate thing, so tied into our sexuality and who we are. For me, that's how I can tell you that it harmed me. Now, I can also say that you're absolutely right. Sex is deemed an inappropriate subject. People either shut down or they start giggling or maybe they just like blurt out everything and say too much, <laughs> laugh out loud, make jokes. But it's, it is deemed inappropriate and something to be ashamed of. There's so much shame in our country and the way that people think about sex. And we're such a sexualized country, like over-sexualized over when it comes to the media. But we're also very, you know, shamed when it comes to our personal selves. So it really is confusing and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And for, for autistic folks, that can be really harmful. The messages that you're getting publicly and through the media and through those kinds of sources versus the this other message that you're hearing that it's bad and that it's shameful, it can really make you want to close yourself off from that subject or maybe not engage in conversation about that or even feel like you have the right to, to ask questions. There's, you know, sex has been pathologized. 
just like neurodiversity, right? Mm -hmm. Neurodiversity has been pathologized. We've been told that it's bad, that it's an illness, that so they those two things definitely have something in common. There's stigma, right? There's stigma in both of in both aspects, but specifically about sex, there's stigma that is if you are doing something that is not prescribed as the appropriate sex, according to the heteronormative social narrative, then you are bad. So explaining that this heteronormative narrative says men like sex, women don't. If women do like sex, then they're bad. Men are dominant sexual creatures. Women are submissive. Monogamy is the only way to engage in sexual relationships and heterosexual monogamous sex with zero or only a few specific accepted kinks. I would say heterosexual monogamous sex with zero or a very few accepted kinks. That's good sex. People who deviate from that in any way, shape, or form are bad people because they're engaging in bad sex. (laughs) That is harmful. That is so, so harmful. It's a narrow window of goodness with a whole huge room of bad. And then people have trauma and shame surrounding their sexual identity. That trauma, that shame bleeds into all of the other areas of life affecting participation in school, in relationships, in work, in every single thing that we do, as well as the outcomes experienced in all of those different areas of our life. So you said, you know, autistics are often, (laughs) we're often assumed to not enjoy or to not care about sex and relationships. Just that story that is happening in our society is harmful. It's harmful to us and it's harmful to everybody else. Many of us enjoy and desire both sex and relationships. We also have a different way, many of us, not all, but many of us also have a different way of seeing our genders, our sexuality and our romantic orientations. There's been a lot of study happening recently, just within the last year or so, that is showing that there are higher there's a higher correlation of queer and neurodivergent folks. Why? There's not necessarily an answer to that yet. This is fairly recent studies. But I think a lot of us who are in those communities were like, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> Why did that surprise you? Um, <laughs> it, that To me, that just seems normal. It seems natural. Maybe that's why I enjoy so much working with neurodivergent and queer folks, because we do experience a lot of the things, and many of us have those those intersections that are, we belong in both. We drive down the lane of both intersections in our lives. For those of us who don't follow that heteronormative narrative that I mentioned earlier, we are considered bad. Now we're bad because we're autistic. And we're also bad because we're sexual deviants. That's a lot of shame to carry. It doesn't feel good. And of course, that affects our mental health and it affects everything that we do in our life. 
So one of the ways it harms many of us is not considering that being neurodivergent involves sensory needs that are often heightened, whether they're sensory avoiding or sensory seeking. We often have both of these behaviors. The sensory avoiding behaviors lends people to thinking that we don't like sex. Again, many of us do. We just need to be comfortable and feel safe to share what kinds of touches and what kinds of activities are okay that help us feel safe. Because when we feel safe, that desire button gets turned on and it allows us to engage in and enjoy sexual pleasure with ourselves or with others. We also have to feel safe and comfortable being able to say what's not okay. Because as soon as something is not okay and we feel like we're not consenting to it, then it activates that fight flight response, the desire switch gets turned off, and we are not able to enjoy sexual pleasure. Although sometimes we will engage in it anyway, out of expectation. And that's non-consensual. And that's harmful. You brought up a lot of really important points, but I think one that I think is is a stereotype and is is definitely false is that when autistic people are touched and may might you know it might be a surprise could be relating to they're just overwhelmed from the day that people come to conclusions maybe partners come to conclusions that they don't want to be touched or they don't want those experiences you know do you have any kind of like suggestions at this point like hey like should there be some communication that should be happening that that isn't happening Absolutely. There are a couple of things that I do with when I'm working with clients or when I'm doing workshops. I have an entire workshop that is just on communication and relationships. And in that, we talk about communicating, negotiating, and consent. Part of that is this five-piece touch continuum, which is really, it's a really fascinating continuum. So the five parts of that are there's healing touch. There's affectionate touch, there's sensual touch, erotic touch, and then sexual touch. Sometimes the touch that is maybe surprising to us, and it is a sensory thing, but also there's a whole lot of meaning underneath touch. So I like to use the example because this is one that happens in both neurodivergent and neurotypical relationships, and it causes problems equally across the board. You're in the kitchen, and you're doing the dishes, or you're cooking, and your partner comes up behind you, and they wrap their arms around you, and they give you a kiss on the side of your face or on your neck. Your body tenses up, and immediately you're irritated or agitated, or you push them off. It could be because the touch surprised you. It could be because they didn't let you know that they were coming to touch you. But equally, there's this confusion of why did they touch me? What did that touch mean? 
and what do they want in return? And that's really important. This makes a huge difference for couples to, to have this conversation. For somebody to come up and say, before they touch you, I'm going to hug you, I love you, and I'm just doing this because I want to hug you and I want you to know I love you. I don't expect anything in return. Now, I don't have that confusion. I don't have the confusion of how am I supposed to respond to this versus that kiss on my neck. Does that mean that they want to have sex later tonight? And here I am, I'm tired, I've been working all day, I'm taking care of the kids, I'm exhausted, the dog is barking, there are all these sounds, the last thing I want to do is have sex. And all they want from me is sex. I'm not a piece of meat, I'm more than that. You see how those that emotion can be equally, and often we don't get that, right? We for folks who struggle with the interoceptive sense, and that is understanding their emotions and how they are feeling internally, that just adds to the confusion because they can't necessarily identify in the moment, why am I upset? Why am I angry? And then they go into the shame cycle. And most people don't feel sexy when they're feeling ashamed. So, yes, that communication piece is is huge and understanding the touch continuum understanding all of the, the the pieces to that and how healing touch is different from sensual touch and how sensual touch with the proper communication can create a beautiful intimate space for people but it doesn't have to lead to sex because sexual touch is a touch of its own and erotic touch doesn't mean that we have to have sex because sexual touch is its own. And so there we go again, going back to that consent piece too of I'm allowed to say no. Oftentimes we feel okay saying no when somebody wants to give us affection. We're like, nope, I don't want to hug. Nope, no thank you. But once we've gotten to the place of erotic touch, or somebody touches us in a way that we think they are expecting sex, we might not say no when we really actually do want to say no. So that understanding that is very, very important. And then being able to communicate that with partners is very, very important. You know, one of the reasons I like talking about sex and sexuality is that so many of these things kind of transfer into other areas of our life. And something, you know, something that you just mentioned that's certainly related to sex is consent. But I think for so many autistic people, they don't have consent in many other areas of their life and more than just just sex. Do you have suggestions on how neurodivergent folks can start to uh, take some steps to have more consent relating to sex or in just other areas of their lives as well? I think the first thing is to understand that consent is not something that we do only surrounding sex. Some people struggle to make the link from the consent that we talk about with sex and being able to use that same framework in every other aspect of our life. 
but consent is consent. The framework of consent is the same. So let's expand our understanding of what consent is and understand that consent is the key to everything we do. Everything in every aspect of our life, like you just said. Regardless of what you're doing, if it is non-consensual, if you are not consenting to whatever is happening, your sympathetic nervous system becomes engaged. Okay, so I'm going to give you a scenario here. Can you give me an example of an animal that many people are afraid of? Well, I can speak for myself in that while I love animals, I'm afraid of many of them. <laughs> There's that contradiction. So maybe a couple that come to mind would be a snake or a bear or even there's a local park like two minutes from me where they have a sign about uh, coyotes out at night. And I don't want to be around there in the dark with a coyote. So I guess those would be some examples for myself. No, that is so perfect. So imagine, imagine you are out and it's dark and you see a coyote. How does your body react? I feel like I'm going to tense up and I'm going to maybe think like, oh shit, you know? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And that tensing up of your body and that thinking, oh shit, something else that might happen, your mouth might dry out, yeah. your heart rate increases, your pupils change. That is the fight flight response that happens when our sympathetic nervous system is engaged. And that gets engaged to say, you are in danger, you have to survive. So now your goal and all of the energy that you have is being put into survival. Why is this important? Our brain does not understand the difference between the unsafe situation of you being chased by a wild animal and an unsafe situation of being at work and having something happen that you did not consent to. Whether that is suddenly being called into a meeting or somebody coming in and turning the lights on in your office, anything that is outside of your zone of consent tells us that we are unsafe and our bodies and brains together respond. Doesn't matter if it's during sex, if it's during a personal activity that you're engaging in, if it's doing something with your family, somebody cutting you off in traffic, or because your work environment doesn't accept you for who you are. So if you are going into work every day and feeling that the people there don't like you or don't accept you as an autistic person or a queer person, or a black person, or a person who doesn't speak English as their first language, if you feel that you are not being accepted in your authentic self, then you are outside of your zone of consent, and you are having that sympathetic nervous system response of, I am unsafe, I have to get away, I must survive. Oh my gosh! So many of us live in that place all day, every day. How long could you run away from that coyote or bear or whatever's chasing you? How long could you sustain that running? Hmm. I mean, 
I guess it depends on the person. There's a bunch of factors, but in that state, my running, I would imagine, would be different than in other states. Absolutely, 100%. So you're going to expend all of the energy that you have in being safe, which when you do get to safety, how much energy do you have left to do the things that you enjoy? Zero. You are spent. You are done. There is no more energy. And that is why understanding consent across across the board, right, in every single aspect of our life is important. Because if we are in that state of survival all day at work, when we get home, it will be difficult for us to engage in pleasurable activities, including sex, with our partner, partners, or ourselves. Vice versa, if your home life is creating areas where you are feeling shamed or you are feeling unsafe or you are outside of your zone of consent, that's going to bleed over into your work life. And your work life is going to suffer. So it's very, very, very important. Okay, so because we're talking about consent, I do, I want to bring up the BDSM community. This is important for anybody to understand, but as neurodivergent folks, there have been studies that have shown that there are high numbers of neurodivergent folks within the BDSM community. There are reasons for that, consent being one of them. So some people, I will say, what what is BDSM? BDSM stands for bondage and discipline, domination and submission, sadism and masochism. And people think that all it is is sex involving pain and control. Let me be very clear. That is the narrowest definition possible (laughs) of what it actually is. There is much more to it, and most of it has absolutely nothing to do with sex. There are plenty of people who engage in BDSM without having intercourse at all. One of the trainings that I do is using submission to regulate the nervous system. You can easily do that without having sex or without even having a sexual relationship with somebody. So with BDSM, both parties have full control. It's not one person controlling another person. Both parties or all parties involved, because sometimes it's more than two, have full control of everything that happens. That means it's consensual. Wouldn't that be nice if that were happening in the office, at school, in a course that you're taking, when you go to the grocery store, to have a community, an entire community with consent at the center of everything. That is why some of us are drawn to the BDSM community. We really appreciate and feel safe within the structure of communication and negotiation that happens so that partners know they get to know each other's desires, they know each other's needs. No activity is engaged in without communication, negotiation, and consent. Now that looks different in every relationship, but regardless, the participants know exactly how to share 
with their partner or partners to express joy and displeasure. They are safe in that sharing. There's no shame ever involved in saying no. Thanks for sharing about that, you know, especially you know, kind of talking about safety, because I think it really ties into one of my favorite subjects, which is artistic joy. And I don't think you can have joy without safety. And an important part of that joy for many artistic folks re revolves around sex, in particular, what pleasure means to them. So when you work with clients and they learn what pleasure means to them, like, how do you see that impacting uh, their, their lives? I love this question. <laughs> I love this question because it, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel proud. It makes me feel really happy for the clients who come to mind. For me, myself, it was in trying to understand what is pleasure um, that led me to wanting to become a sexologist in the first place. Now that started over 30 years ago <laughs> because I really, I wanted to understand that. I can tell you one thing. If we struggle to understand or identify what pleasure is in one aspect of our life, that will affect pleasure in all aspects of our lives. So I'm going to give you an example of a client who came to me. She wanted to understand herself as a sexual being. We were able to see right away that she had this deeply embedded belief that she was too rigid and could not experience joy or pleasure because she'd been told that. The social narrative told her that that's who she was as a person. This belief system, I mean, you can imagine how that would cause you to struggle to experience sexual pleasure. So she needed to consent to pleasure in all aspects of her life so that she could consent to pleasure sexually. Once she realized that she was, in fact, able to experience pleasure, she was able to give the consent to experience it in all areas of life. So we worked on sensory aspects of it, right? Not just sexually. Remember, 95% of the conversations I have have nothing to do with sex and everything to do with the stuff surrounding it. We were able to identify sights, sounds, touches, tastes, smells. We're not going to get into the other senses right now. We were able to identify these things that she liked. She liked the way that the sidewalk sparkles in the sun. Isn't that pleasure? She appreciated how a leaf falls from the tree and glides to the ground. Pleasure! Uh, she enjoyed how her niece giggled anytime she wore this certain hat. Pleasure! So she wasn't able to, she wasn't unable to experience pleasure. She just didn't recognize that those experiences were indeed pleasure. Three sessions. We had three sessions, and she was able to let go of a lifelong belief that she could not experience pleasure and understand herself as a pleasure-loving person because she defined pleasure for herself. I mean, that is beautiful. She redefined what pleasure was, and then, bam, it opened up the world 
that's impactful. And it had nothing to do with sex. Uh, I mentioned the other three senses, right? So we know that it's not just the five senses. We have eight senses, actually. I had another client who I worked with, and we really worked with those senses, the proprioception, the interoception, and the vestibular senses. And within two weeks of us working together, this is actually, I'll give you the link to this. It's an article that I wrote for sex coaches and sex therapists to work with their clients. So anybody can go and read this. It goes through the whole process that we did. But within two weeks, she was feeling less stress, having less angry reactions to situations, and able to communicate her needs to her partner. And that was through doing things outside of the bedroom. That was through doing things at work and just some different ways that we set up her environment. Within two weeks, it changed. That's just beautiful. You know, we've talked about you being a certified sexologist. And and this kind of, this I'm sure relates to this, but you're also a, or there's definitely some parallels, but you're also a sensory environment strategist. I definitely think so often about how to make environments more supportive of each person's sensory profile. Everyone's different. And the first place I think about is someone's home or apartment because, you know, it's it's ideally the safest place for us to be in the entire world. So when thinking about making these environments more supportive, what are kind of some of the things you think people should be looking at or thinking about? That's such a good question because that's exactly what I did with Peyton, that client. The name has changed there, by the way. I did That is not the actual name, but it's the name I used in the write-up that I did. We specifically looked at their sensory profile. The first time we met, they had no idea what that meant. They're like, what's a sensory profile? I'm like, okay, let's talk about this. So that's the number one thing. What is your sensory profile? Now, a lot of people listening have heard of sensory profiles because they are in this realm (laughs) of autism and many of us have, but there's a chance that somebody out there hasn't heard of a sensory profile. And if you haven't, I highly encourage you to contact one of us and ask and get some information because your sensory profile is the key to you regulating your nervous system, which helps you safely move through your day and communicate your needs to other people. So we want to create a sensory supportive environment. That is the number one thing. Whether you're neurodivergent or not, we want to have a sensory supportive environment. So for Peyton, what we did is we made several changes in their environment. We added a mobility wall. That's not an entire wall. It's just this little thing that you put on your door and it has different pressure points on it. It's a really cool thing. But we had a mobility wall added to their space so that they could experience physical pressure whenever and how hard and how deep they wanted that pressure any time through the day. We did that at work in the office. And at home, instead of cleaning and like saying, oh, on Saturday morning, I'm going to clean for four hours. It's going on my schedule. We had Peyton do their cleaning in little 15-minute bursts throughout the day which allowed them to get up and move, which allowed them to regularly engage in heavy work because that's something that they needed. So throughout the 
day, they would have multiple opportunities to do the push-pull of vacuuming, mopping, scrubbing, carrying a laundry basket, moving furniture, bending, reaching, all those different things that we do when we clean. We had them talk to their partner and communicate about the 20-second hug and how to hug properly. We may not think of hugs as being part of our environment, but people are part of our environment. And we can engage people to support us in our environments. So if you live with somebody, teaching them how to hug you, hold you, touch you in a way that helps you feel good is important. <laughs> it's very important to feel to feel soothed, to feel connected. That's part of your environment. We added a swing on their porch for the vestibular stimulation. You know, people don't necessarily think about that with adults, but why not? If you like to swing or you like to swivel around in your chair or whatever, do it. So knowing their sensory profile is what gave us everything that we needed to be able to create the optimal environment for them so that they could experience the most joy at home. If you love wearing corsets because you like tight clothing, then wear a freaking corset. You know, your workplace shouldn't be telling you that you can't wear that. What's wrong with it? Right? Of course, we can wear them under our clothes, too. But don't be ashamed to wear it on your clothes if the stated uniform doesn't say you can't. <laughs> wear a corset. It's, it regulates your nervous system, and it helps you be more productive. And we like to be productive. So no reason not to. <laughs> <laughs> Get a spinny chair, get a trampoline in your office, you know, these different things that help you. And I know I'm sitting here and I'm like, oh, this is so easy. Just do this and change it. I know that's not the case for everybody. I don't know if I would have gotten my diagnosis at the time I did had I not been put in a case where I could not change my home environment in the way I would like to. Right now you're looking at me and I have this like beige colored wall behind me. Gross. <laughs> gross I don't like light colors I like dark colors I like rich colors I like vibrant colors eggplant purple kelly green black orange variety of dark woods but I can't I live in military housing and I can't change it so it's important to me that I have other things that I incorporate things into my environment to offset the discomfort that the white walls create for me because, like you said, home should be safe. It should feel safe. Sometimes there are obstacles in the way of us creating a sensory relevant environment for us. But I promise you there's always something that can be done. There are so many ways to get creative and create a space where you feel safe in. And everybody has the right to have that space. Absolutely. Uh, there are so many ways. And beyond this interview, how can people learn more about you and the services you provide? There are lots of ways. Actually, I'll give you a couple links to articles that they can read about some of the stuff that I've talked about. My website, I'm revamping it right now. So if you go to it, it's not going to look like I want it to, but it is there. It's mamapistachio.com. The only page that is up right now is my little dragon's booklet, which is like an 18-page little 
booklet of things to help regulate the sensory nervous system. So cool. It's got lots of lots of recommendations and links to other things in there too. I have a Discord community where people can reach me, discord.mamapistachio.com. Everybody can find me on LinkedIn under at Angela Locascio or at mama-pistachio or at Drudgery and Dreams, which is my <laughs> podcast. <laughs> YouTube, Drudgery and Dreams, all of the socials, Drudgery and Dreams for my podcast. And then most recently, I have created a community on Open Collective, and that is to support people who want to work with me who do not have the financial means to do so. So it is just a way of people financially backing neurodivergent and queer individuals and small business owners to get support, even if they don't have financial means to access coaching and consulting. I want everyone to have the opportunity to get support, but I can't pay for it all myself. And that is at opencollective.com backslash mama, M-A-M-A hyphen pistachio like the nut. Well, Angela, you had mentioned a couple times um, as we were as we've been speaking that as a sexologist, about five percent of your um, conversations are about sex. I appreciate um, our conversation being one of those five percent because I think this was a really important conversation to have. So thanks so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me to talk about this really important aspect of who we are. Thanks so much to Angela for the conversation. To learn more about Angela, please check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. In addition to that, Angela recently created a community on the website Open Collective in order to engage the community in financially backing neurodivergent and queer individuals and small business owners to get support even if they don't have financial means to access coaching and consulting services. She wants everyone to have the opportunity to get that support, but she simply can't pay for it all by herself. To learn more about this initiative, please visit opencollective.com slash mama, M-A-M-A dash pistachio, P-I-S-T-A-C-H-I-O. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach provides extraordinary support to live self-sufficient and purpose-driven lives through our customized coaching? If this is something that you're interested in learning more about, please visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Till next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.